0: Hello, my name is John Smetanka and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Ron Grossman who has been a guest on our show before. This time we're going to be talking with him about his special interest, and mine also, as um, as studiers, studiers of history about the period from the fall of Rome uh, to the fall of Constantinople or Byzantium, which is about a thousand years of European history, which I think is very relevant to today. Uh, Ron is a columnist with the uh, Chicago Tribune and a writer in his own uh, right. This is John Smotanka, and we'll be right back. So, Ron, how are you today?
1: I'm very fine.
0: Good. Well, you know, Ron, one of the things that I found in my conversation with you before and uh, in, in talking to you is that you have a great interest in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. You write, how often do you write your historical columns?
1: Uh, uh, pretty much, I'll oh, say, two or three a month.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about history. Why are you so interested in history?
1: You know, I'm Jewish. Okay. For, for the radio audience, All I'm right. Jewish. Uh,
0: The television audience wouldn't detect either. Go ahead.
1: Exactly. Uh, And the Judo-Christian religions and Islam tell a story in historical terms. Eastern religions like Buddhism or Confucianism, they tell a story in psychological terms, what goes on inside your mind. The uh, Western religions tell you this happened, then that happened, then this happened, and then they forecast that at the end of it, there'll be an even better existence for all of you. Mm -hmm. So having been sent to Hebrew school from first grade till a little after my bar mitzvah, after 13, that idea was deeply implanted in my head. Just if people want to see this, take out a copy of the Bible, look at the Old Testament, especially in the earlier chapters of Genesis. Look how many begin, and. That means there was a before this is happening. And then mm-hmm. the next one on says, and that too. That, that's the way that we think. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well,
0: we... We, th- we think in terms of uh, one event follows another, but yeah. there's there's a relationship oh, between you bet. the two. You bet. And uh, however you, uh, you, you define what happens or the value of what happens, still it's this con- concept of continuum. Right continuation.
1: And, and tied with that is, again, a, a Western idea of progress. Mm-hmm. The ancients didn't have it. The ancients' idea of history was that it went circular, like that. Mm-hmm. And all things kind of revolved. Some good, some backer, then the cycle starts again. Uh, from the Bible, we get the idea that history begins here, and then it goes up and up. It might be slow, but it goes up and there's a better world coming. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that idea of progress is pretty uniquely Western.
0: There's zigs and zags yes. in, the, in the life of the world. Right. And I would say, through my experience uh, in, in life and law, and also doing this radio show uh, for 12 years or so, the, there is in everybody's life, Zigs and zags. Yep. You don't just go on a straight line. Yep. I've, I've told people before that I think on this show I've had five people out of 300, 400, 500 people that I've done uh, shows with that started at age six and they went on a straight line directly to what uh, they ended up doing at mm-hmm. 30, 40, 60, 100. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it is the zigzags which make us interesting. Right. It, it, because it's, it's interesting to track how you can get someplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true of history.
1: Yeah, It sure is. Uh, that was the, uh, the uh, theologian St. Augustine's contribution. He was the first to lay out the story of Christianity in a historical fashion, mm-hmm. he, in, in a sense. And he had a, a pupil by the name of Osiris. Uh, oh, oh something, Mm -hmm. uh, who made it explicit. He said, first came them, then came them, then came them, and here's where we are, and hopefully we're going there.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: One of uh, of his books, one of his famous books, The City of God, um, started off with, I think, a powerful uh, paragraph or two um, about the fall of Rome. And they were talked about the fire, and, and this was like the end of the world. Yes, right. Yes. Uh, that Rome had been invaded by barbarians and had burned and torched at least part of the place, and for he, this was such a shock to that Roman world, which yes. had existed for
1: thousand years.
0: Thousand years at yeah. that point. Yeah. And uh, but it was such a shock that he saw this as a uh, a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. This is a new world now. Mm-hmm. And so he talked about the old Rome and the new Jerusalem. Right.
1: And and, um, he and Jerome, St. Jerome too, were deeply affected by that. Because, again, for the ideas of the Greeks and the Romans, Rome could go bad, go good, but it'd come around again. The idea of extinction was sort of unknown to them. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that Rome fell in different stages the people of the western empire what's now france couldn't accept it so they fought for the survival of the roman empire when the, long after the people of rome itself didn't give a darn mm-hmm. that idea was so firmly planted it survives in the idea of rome the eternal city mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: well and and talking about that you uh, one of my f- uh, fascinations has been um Arthurian legends, mm-hmm. King Arthur, mm-hmm. and if you go back to the original writings uh, William of Malmesbury, and I can't remember who the other fellow is, who wrote about this Arthurian time. Um, this is back in the oh, right. 900s a 1000, in that period, and when they talked about it, they talked about this, this halcyon, this golden age mm-hmm. when Arthur was the king, yep. and they, there were, I I believe, there were actual historical roots for an Arthur. However, uh, you know, they, they, they talk about that his father was a, was a rebel and, his, his, uh, and they tried to reestablish the Roman kingdom yep. in, in, uh, in England. And then, but that idea was... Mutates. Mutates. Yep. And it became a, this huge legend.
1: Yes. I had a course in medieval Latin... And we read the Arthurian story in Latin, mm-hmm. but you could trace it to going all across Europe. Yes. If there was a prototype, he probably lived in Brittany, mm-hmm. but then the story gets translated to England, and then it goes to the continent, and Arthur, or an Arthur light character, is saving Ladies' Fair all the way to the Rhine and the Danube.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. and And this. Uh, you know, we see that today in in many movies and uh, in books and poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great uh, what was the name of the the great uh, saga poem b- written by the British poet uh, about Arthur and and I can't even think, think of it right mm-hmm. this minute. But in all these areas in Britain, uh, they they live with King Arthur as. He'll come back someday.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Or we're going to find his, mm-hmm. his body. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Glastonbury Abbey, which is, uh, now they have a music festival in Glastonbury, but, but uh, uh, one of the uh, tourist things is how they show how, oh, this is where the round table was, and this is where the King Arthur and, and Lady and uh, Queen Guinevere were buried. Uh,
1: the idea of Rome was so embodied in the mentality <clears throat> that the great conquerors of medieval Europe styled themselves as a Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Charlemagne, the great king of the Franks, went to Rome to be crowned. Afterwards, the uh, rulers of Austria claimed to be rulers of a holy Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. all the way down to to, to the 20th century. Uh, Voltaire said, kind of snidely, it was neither holy nor Roman nor yet an empire, (laughs) but it was in the minds of those folks.
0: But th- again, if, if, if we talk about it right now. We're in the 21st century, mm-hmm. and we're talking about a concept, an idea of Rome, which was a reality in the minds of the people who lived there, whether it was Gaul, France, mm-hmm. or Spain, Hispania, mm-hmm. or even, even, um, certainly Italy, but Romania, yes. Um um the, the, the Balkans, all of these places were part of that empire. It was yes. the largest empire yeah, in the was. world at the time.
1: You know, that's not the only <clears throat> thing that survives from that age in our practice and in our thinking. You are a lawyer, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever have to take a client to the grand jury? Oh, yes. Did you walk into the room with them? Well, no, because yeah, I was yeah. the
0: prosecutor. <laughs> was, okay.
1: Uh, yeah. So you were in the room. I was in the room. But, but the guy's lawyer wasn't. That's right. That's because of the system that was invented by William the Conqueror. Ah. Uh-huh. 1066, he comes over from Normandy, takes over England. Uh, a lot of people are happy to see him. A lot of people are not happy to see him. He wants to set up a system of justice, but he knows that out there in the countryside – there's a lot of people that think of him as an outsider, so he set up a system where his people would go around to the circuit of counties and convene a large group of residents. That's why it's called a grand jury; it's larger mm-hmm. than the trial jury. Take him into room and close the doors, bring down the shutters, and say, "Who did what since we were here last?" Mm-hmm. And that's the system we do today. It is, and, it's, and that's
0: interesting that you raise that particular um, phenomenon. We also have, besides the grand jury, what we call the petty jury oh, yeah, sure. or the trial jury. Yeah. But both of those words are French. Yes, of course. Petty, small, yeah. grand, large. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the, the uh, concept of having those citizens, and I, uh, I, I, luckily my memory is not such that I can remember a lot of the cases that I took in front of a grand jury, but I can tell you this. When you went in front of this citizen's grand jury and you would present a witness and you would turn to the foreman of the jury after you're finished asking questions of this witness and say, uh, Mr. or Ms. Foreman, would you – do you have any questions or do the members of the jury have questions? One of the fascinating things and revelations to me was they did. Yes, of course. And their questions were much different than the ones I right. would ask. Yep. They're much more down to earth, more practical and it was a road sign, a series of road signs, as to what I could expect if this case went to trial and how the, the jury was going to react, the, the trial jury was going mm-hmm. to react.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But that, uh, that's an interesting vignette.
1: They were practicing uh, what we call democracy, uh, and though we associate that with the Greeks, it really had lapsed, uh, and it was limited in Greece itself. It's interesting that in, in ancient Greek, you don't call a system like democracy. That was mob rule in their thought. Mm-hmm. Isonomia was the word, meaning equal justice. Mm. Come down to the Middle Ages, and uh, a series of practices developed, like the grand jury, that get people a, give people a say in their own government, and that's where our sense of democracy comes. Uh, look, just last week we celebrated the 4th of July, uh, which was a time when we kicked out the King of England. We gave him sort of like a uh, job review and said he flunked it and he's out. <laughs> that's a remarkable idea. Through most of human history, nobody would have dreamt to say that the king has got to go. But then the barons of England got ticked off with King John. They forced him to sign something called the Magna Carta, uh, and it's a list of his abuses. 1215. 1215 A.D., which reads uh, amazingly like our Declaration of Independence, and the idea there is that the king rules on behalf of us, not for him, not for his son-in-law, but for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's a remarkable idea. And that was born in this uh, period of time that we call the Dark Ages.
0: You know, that's, again, that, that's absolutely fascinating because we call it the Dark Ages partially because there's not a lot of, not as many written records, I think. Uh, but th- th- it's not that, first of all, there's a lot of records oh, written. Yes, yes.
1: and yes, uh, was Much more so than in the ancient world. Yeah, Not much more so. Uh, we have, we have the uh, what they're called the Rolls series, the decisions of the English king, uh, who got cases on appeal, in the 11th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go there and, and take a look at them. Go ahead. Um, the other p- place where you find this is in the idea that things can change, mm-hmm. things can change. Uh, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages began with a fairly strict system that comes to be called f- feudalism. Mm-hmm. There is a king off someplace. Uh, the barons owe allegiance to him and below them the knights all, uh, allow, uh, owe allegiance to the barons and mm-hmm. that's the way it's been and that's the way it's always going to be. But in fact Constantly, that thing was shifting.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. When cities come back, and they declined at the end of the Roman Empire because trade routes were cut, when they come back, they have a unique standing. They don't fit in.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, uh, The people that live there certainly are not a king. They're not a baron, and they don't want to be knights. You know, they're businessmen. Mm -hmm. They begin to insist that we have to have some say in it and again in England they figure out that hey all those other people get invited to parliament we're going to and they do and then they spot a uh, what do sports people call it a tell a vulnerability on the the other side they noted that that the lower realm of that system the knights were, had some differences with the people above them. So they said, let's make common cause. And they began to hold their deliberations together as opposed to the upper chambers, and that became the House of Commons.
0: And we're going to stop right there for just a second, and we're going to take a break with the creation of the House of Commons in in London, in England, and... We've been talking to Ron Grossman, a historical columnist for the Chicago Tribune and writer. And this is John Smutanker. We're on With Respect, and we will be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Ron Grossman, uh, historical columnist for the Chicago Tribune and a writer and, and uh, an avid historian and a person with who's actually taken history and um, looks at it in the, in the big picture, the 30,000-foot uh, 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 view. So, Ron, when we broke, <clears throat> we were talking about The way that uh, the Magna Carta 1266, uh, pardon me, uh, 1215, 1215. which was really a a charter, an agreement to prevent a rebellion Mm -hmm. uh, between the king and his barons. Right. And they wrote this great thing called the Magna Carta, the Great Charter of Rights. Uh, And but... They
1: extended uh, it to everybody. Eventually. But if you look at the document, it doesn't say... This is just for the muggity mugs. It talks in very general terms.
0: But when they were, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to slightly disagree with you. When they, uh, when it first started off, it was something to pacify the, oh, the barons. Oh, that's yes, clearly, clearly. And the concepts, however, yeah, we're, were the ones that developed into.
1: Exactly. Um, remember, uh, we were saying that uh, the townspeople. And the lower orders of the aristocracy figured out that they could get a double weight if they went together. One of the things they decided that is what's the best way to hold a king to good government? Don't give him the money if he doesn't ha and it began to develop that you had to get their side of it before mu- they had to get their approval before money would be appropriated for whatever he wants to do. go on a crusade. Buy some land or something like that. Fast forward. That's the system we use in the United States today. Mm-hmm. We have two houses of Congress, the Senate, and the House of Republicans uh, the House of Representatives, Representatives. right? Uh, and it, it, uh, a an appropriation bill has to begin there,
0: and in fact, that is something which is in our con- constitution, exactly drawn up back in the uh, 1783, Pardon me, seventeen eighty nine. And uh, this 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 is a real, a very real thing today. My oh, brother yeah. worked for the House of Representatives as a lawyer, and one of the things that they used to say over there in the House of Representatives when they were in, Ticked off at the the Senate was, wait a minute. We are an equal branch of the govern of, right. of the Congress. Right. All bills have for money mm-hmm. have to start with us. Yep. And uh, he said they would say that the the Senate had the mistake uh, mistaken view that all they had to do was pass it and became law. Mm-hmm. Oh no, yep. they they sold themselves and felt themselves even today as the people's house.
1: Yeah, you bet. And you can see that right now. The uh, focus over the health care bill is being done as an amendment or a reconciliation of the appropriations. Therefore, we can use these rules rather than those rules. So there we are, 12th century then, right today.
0: And so that's an example of how history is a stream. And it's a stream of uh, individuals and groups working with the world around them. But they're dealing with the same kind of human emotions Mm -hmm. and human needs Mm -hmm. that we have today.
1: Yep. Uh, If you want to see, it's a beautiful day out there. If you want to see another uh, uh, long-lasting innovation in the Middle Ages, go down a road and you'll see on one side corn, on the other side uh, soy, and the third one is empty. That's called the three-field f- system. And that was done in the Middle Ages. That, because before that, uh, the, the land would get, um, uh, the, the minerals would be exhausted. And then somebody figured out if you rotate the crops mm-hmm. and then give the land a year off, you can eat a, a lot better than you can
0: now. That's right, because biology, uh, crop, agronomics, <clears throat> they didn't use the word in those yep. days, but said rotating crops gives a chance for the soil to replenish itself.
1: And uh, in the winter wintertime, uh, we feed the cows hay. That was a medieval invention. Somebody said, gee, those cows really like this stuff, and we barely have anything left to, give them to get them through the winter. What if we cut some down now? dry it out so it won't decay, and put it in the barn for winter, the Middle Ages. Smart. Yes, it was. Now, people in the collective are much smarter than people in the individual. There's an Einstein or so, but when it comes to practical solutions, they're generally worked out by people over a long period of time. Well, you know,
0: that leads into something going back into the law which is we call today we are we are a common law country mm-hmm. all right common law is not it has a specific meaning and history yes before the norman conquest there were villages all over england right. and britain what is now britain and they each of them had different ways of looking mm-hmm. at how they regulate themselves yep. Yep. well guess what the, those individual customs and, and, uh, and, and, and regulations and understandings, they were pretty proud of that. And when the Normans came in, they brought with them French law, which is now also Roman law, which was different. Mm-hmm. And that was the king's law. But somebody along the line was smart enough to say that we want to incorporate common law that is the law of the villages, into the overall scheme for the country.
1: Mm Partially that was done because uh, William the Conqueror and his uh, heirs were were sort of foreign. They -hmm. they spoke French. The kings of England spoke French all the way down to Edward the the Edwards at the end of the 13th century. Mm -hmm. So they had to find a way to bridge the gap between their cultural understanding and that village out near the Firth of Forth or wherever. The
0: Anglo-Saxons. Right. And so, the Celts and right. the Welsh and the whole group. So
1: the principle was <clears throat> whatever happens in your part of the world, if you're not satisfied with a decision, come to our court. Mm-hmm. Come to our court. We, we will render a kind of justice which transcends these local differences. That, that's a big leap.
0: Well, there was another interesting leap, too, which, again, has an effect today. That is, there was the King's Law, mm-hmm. and the King's Law was very, called law, the law courts. And those courts were, uh, tended to be run on very specific um, writs, and those writs were ways that you could get some kind of relief. Quo warranto. Quo warranto is one, and habeas corpus was mm-hmm. another. And these, by their names, are mm-hmm. either Latin or in habeas corpus or quo warranto, or were Latin, uh, but there's also French words that were used. But the point is, if you didn't fit, if your case didn't fit within one of the little cubicles, then you were out of luck. The judge hits the thing and, judge, next and you're case. gone. Next case. However, at the same time, there was a different law, developing and that was the commercial law and the religious law mm-hmm. they had the ecclesiastical or church courts and those folks had a, developed something called equity fairness right. and they operated on a completely different realm of thinking that is let's take a look at this individual case and then let's see how fairness plays out so they call today we talk about let's do equity right well that's an old phrase yeah
1: That was a a result partially of the growth of cities. Right. Because where you have cities, you have commerce. And where you have commerce, you have disputes. You know, you didn't make the suit the size I want. But the uh, the relief of the older courts often involved things like Let's fight a tournament; and the winner wins. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or let's dunk somebody in the water and see if he floats. <laughs> well, you can't run a business that way. <laughs> uh, so they developed ways of of look them, the people themselves de- develop ways of looking at commercial transactions and finding a general principle in there that ought to be upheld. That's where that commercial mm-hmm. and equitable law comes from. And so
0: we have these parallel court systems which ran on from uh, the, quote, the dark ages or the, the uh, uh, common law and whatnot. And those parallel courts came right to our revolution. Yep. And in our revolution, in our constitution, we said, basically, the common law of England, as it exists right this moment, mm-hmm. 1789, uh, is our law. Yep. And so today some states, for example, uh, uh, Illinois has a court system which includes different divisions, the circuit court, but they'll talk about the law division. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about the criminal division. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about the family division, but the family division is really a part of the old court slash commercial equitable system right. and a complete different set of rules. At the same time, not to, to bring it to some sort of a, uh, a conclusion, we have, quote, Ab- uh, abolished the distinction between the legal system and the equitable system. So now we have judges, the same judges, can work in either system. But, again, the Middle Ages, these Dark Ages, produced a way of judging ourselves and ruling ourselves that is, except, uh, is being used today.
1: Let me speak as a big city boy. I don't know how it works out here. But, <laughs> but in Cook County, uh, you have chancellery and you have the other parts. Mm-hmm. Chancery hears the qu- cases in equity, mm-hmm. which are generally things that you can't find a monetary solution to. That's right.
0: That's exactly right.
1: And I don't know how they do it. But well, whoever is the chief judge make sure that the smarter ones go there. <laughs> because it's easy to follow a formula and look up the price for it. But to figure out what's right and wrong... We are... I
0: teach in Europe. I teach American law to Czech and Slovak lawyers. Oh. And I've been doing it since 2001. <clears throat> they have a completely different system. Uh, they And they don't completely understand, though they study it, they don't completely understand our common law system. They have civil law, which was originally Roman law, translated through uh, Napoleon uh, into a, what they call the civil code that he uh, sponsored when he was in sort of running live in Europe. One of, that's one of his great contributions, is the legal system of Europe is still based primarily on the uh, theories uh, of the Roman law and as he saw them. But at any rate... Um, in coming to, to an understanding um, of the differences in the system, that is how I end up going over and uh, other professors go over and uh, talk and explain how American and British common law work in reality. And, but here's what I found. Surprisingly enough, the European system is very gradually adopting some things from the common law system. Mm. And the common law, American system, are gradually picking up some of the attributes of the civil code. Now, they're, not, they're still pretty different, mm-hmm. um, and you still have to have an education for both. But it is there are certain things which are changing, and it's interesting to watch.
1: If you want to see where that education comes, and have a good meal. Go to the city of Bologna, Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the food is fabulous. All right, that no, that's a
0: right there. I'm interested.
1: Uh, and it was the first what we would call now a university to study law in an organized fashion. The at the end of the Roman Empire, the the Roman laws had the Roman law was codified. The greatest of the codes is known as the Code Justinian. Mm-hmm. But it's a book. And the people of Bologna figured out between that book and what's going to actually happen down the street when this guy gets into an argument with that guy, there's a reasoning process. And so they taught that book to students in an organized fashion and made comment on it. That's how we write legal briefs today.
0: And when did did that university begin to do that?
1: Uh, If memory serves me correctly, in the 1200s.
0: There you go. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Ron Grossman, uh, who is a historical columnist for the Chicago Tribune and a writer in his own, uh, aside from that. But um, we are talking about an area which uh, is, is absolutely fascinating and very relevant to today, uh, called the Middle Ages. This is John Smutank, everyone, with respect, and we will be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Ron Grossman, historical columnist for the Chicago Tribune and a person with a, a, a deep knowledge of European and American history, um, from especially from the uh, the time of the fall of Rome. Uh, and certainly we've been talking now about uh, concepts that go through the 1200s, 1300s, and, and on up to today, and how it today affects us. So... Ron, when you, were, when you were talking about the code, I've got to tell a story. I went to law school. Mm-hmm. And in law school, and the school I went to, there was a professor who gave the same lecture every year, literally verbatim. And some wise owl had recorded, several years before I got there, recorded with a hidden tape recorder his whole performance. And I'm not kidding that the jokes were the same, The asides were the same. Everything was the same from year to year. At one point, uh, he wanted to show the um, fallibility of the American educational system. And what he said was, you know, one of the things we don't appreciate is the Latin language. And, you know... How many people here, for example, have actually studied Latin? Well, this is 102 people in law school. So about 50% had had some sort of Latin. So they raise their hand. He says, well, how many have had two years of Latin? And the the hands start to dribble down. Three years, four years, five years. He gets to five years, and nobody's hand is up except mine Mm -hmm. because I had had 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I've got my hand up. Uh, he's now he's getting nervous because no one has done this to him before so he said he looked at me and he just panty he said 9 10 11 and I dropped my hand he said, well 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 uh, uh, with that great education you should have no difficulty translating the following now I didn't have the benefit of the tape-recorded session to find out what it was he was going to give me. But what he said was this. He said, well, translate this for us from Justinian's Code. And I thought, okay, fine. So he started with something that I understood, like Aves Sunt, and then this long line of words that I had not the slightest idea what they were except one word, which pol- which was polumba, which means dove, mm-hmm. and then at the end the word sunt means they are. They are. So I, I said I'm sorry, uh, professor, but there's a lot of words that I don't understand. And then he was relieved. And now he turns, he leans back, and he says, "You see, even a person <laughs> like this with this education." I later found out he's well. I'm going to translate this for you, and he read What it was, the this. Interesting man. I'm going to use some other adjectives. Um, was he was reading a section from Justinian's Code, which simply listed all the different kinds of birds. Oh, you know there was robins, there were eagles, there was some, you know doves and everything. The whole thing was words, but identifying birds, and then they are, and
1: that was it. Latin is usually said to be a dead language, and we think that it went out with the end of the Roman Empire. No. No. In the uh, early modern period, the kings of Austria built a multinational uh, empire uh, extending through uh, Austria, Hungary, and down into the Balkans. Well, comes the 19th century, and it's fashionable to give citizens representation in some kind of diet. When they got there, everybody said, no, I want to speak Hungarian. No, I want to speak Slovak they made Latin the language of their parliamentary debates. Ah. Because at the time, still, most educated people spoke it, and nobody claimed that it was mine. It was university, universal. So as far as I remember, it stays down to the end of that empire.
0: Well, I want to I uh, add something to that, which is <clears throat> we have um, English is a combination of Germanic, and Latinate language. With
1: well, a little French, With it. a
0: little French. Well, Latinate, uh, French is a Latin or Romance mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. And we use the word Romance, we're not talking about lovey dovey, we're talking about Roman right. romance. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Spain, Italy, Portugal, um, uh, to, some ex- to some extent, uh, uh, England and the English language, and a lot of other languages have some base. In Latin, mm-hmm. one of the interesting com- countries I learned about that has an interesting Latinate base is Romania.
1: Yes, of course.
0: And I remember picking up a newspaper, a Roman Rom- Romanian newspaper, and I'll be darned—I could read some of it. Yep. And it was. It is because they are actually very, they kept close to the classical Mm -hmm. Roman for many Mm -hmm. years.
1: And if you take (coughs) off the end of it, which tends to be the Slavic part, Mm -hmm. I I can understand it a little bit myself. Nobody knows for sure how that happened uh, because the Roman Empire was bilingual. It was Latin in the west and Greek in the east, Mm -hmm. but Romania is in the east. Mm-hmm. And the best guess is that at the end of their service, Roman soldiers were given a plot of land out on the frontier, sort of like Daniel Boone, mm-hmm. uh, and they were to plow it and be the first line of defense. And they kept using Latin and just passed it on. And here you have this sea of Romance languages surrounded by uh, a Slavic ones.
0: Well, let's let's stop for a minute and and, and um, bring some history into the final part of that Dark Ages period, and that is after the um, 300s, in the 300s, uh, they had a great Roman Empire, Constantine, mm-hmm. uh, who actually had roots in, uh, in England mm-hmm. uh, before he uh, ended up uh, becoming the emperor. He, had, he won the Battle of uh, a Bridge. I can't, Mulvian Bridge. Mulvian Bridge. And uh, he became the emperor he was a good administrator. Mm-hmm. He was a brilliant man, mm-hmm. and so, but he realized that the Roman Empire was too large <clears throat> to be ruled only from Rome, and so he set up a, a separate capital yes. in Constant. He called it Constantinople. Created a whole new city over on the Bosporus, which is now part of of uh, Turkey. Mm-hmm. And when he did that, he b- built this beautiful city, which was many in many respects a model of the Roman. Uh, the original Roman city. Uh, They had their Colosseum, they had their their, uh, Mm racetrack, they had all this.
1: He also imported a rabble. Unemployed people just to sort of follow him through the streets because how can you be an emperor if you don't have people (laughs) saying, give us a little something to eat?
0: Well, he moved there, (laughs) and then eventually... There was a split between mm-hmm. the Roman and the, the, the I'm sorry, the Western Roman Empire, has right. still head- headquartered in Rome, and the Eastern Roman Empire, so, uh, built in and, and uh, functioning out of uh, Constantinople. And as life went on, and the years went on, they became enemies to one another. Yes. And um, to some extent, even till today, because you had the religious controversy— between the different brands of, of uh, Christianity. Right. You had the Roman-based, which is the Pope, and, and uh, uh, Latin rites. And then you had the Greek and the um, uh, Constantinople uh, uh, um, version of Christianity. We call them Orthodox.
1: It, it, it splits out into strange <clears throat> ways. We call the people who lived in Constantinople the Byzantines.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: people who lived there called themselves Romans. Uh-huh. Uh, and because of the Greeks uh, across the water were a, a part of their empire, they called themselves Romani.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When Westerners got to Greece in the 19th century, like, uh, oh, the poets. The Byron? Roma, yes, exactly. They had to teach the Greeks, no, 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 you're Greek. Which, in fact, is not even a Greek word. Their word for their language is elena. Right, right. So here you have people speaking Greek, and thinking that they were Romans from the Roman Empire. It comes down to after World War II, the Greek the king was on bad paper, so there was a question about should we let them come back or not, uh, and most of the regions, uh, most of the regions of Greek said no, we've had it, we've had it. Uh, but there's a region down by uh, the, the bottom. If you think of the f- shape of Greece, the bottom is three fingers. Mm-hmm. The middle one is called the mani. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the, either the most traditional or the most backward. They voted for the king's stay. How come? They heard that that king had uh, an extra finger. It was, I think it was called exedectalis, And the last Roman emperor, they said, he had one too. So we want to bring him back so this is, this shows how cultures last for so long
0: they do and and they they, they live in the, the subconscious of the minds of people who listen to their stories from from father to son from yep. mother to daughter yep. uh, for centuries yep. and one of the areas we've talked about so far is how this Roman Empire which ran much of the Western world mm-hmm. uh, for almost 2,000 years. If you take from 700 to um, when they uh, they became, uh, Romulus and Remus uh, mm-hmm. started it, uh, to the time of the fall of Rome, which is about 370-400, and then the fall of the eastern part of the Roman Empire, it uh, was in 1453, 53. so that's about 2,100 years. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing um, uh, track record, if you will. Yep. But you know the thing is that with all the connections, we've talked about law, we've talked about language, we've talked about culture, we've talked about many different things <clears throat> that we carry forward in our history from that period of time. But there's another thing which um, happened in North Africa and, and the Arabian Peninsula, which is the rise of Islam, Islam and the Prophet Muhammad and how the Prophet Muhammad and his um, supporters uh, basically took over much of North Africa, saw the, the Arabian Peninsula, and marched on up into Asia Minor. And took over eventually spade and, and all, but also it came into um, uh, East Asia Por, yeah. yeah and um, so you've got this 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 very potent movement, which is partially religious and partially uh, uh, military, which is frankly what we had in in Europe with Christianity, partly religious, partly military,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you've got two uh, systems of belief and power.
1: Looking at each other. Looking at each other. Yeah. And both learning from each other and fighting each other. Uh, First, part of the reason that uh, Muhammad's conquests and his successors were so so easily done is that in the West, you had a unifying form of Christianity with the Pope. In the East, you did have uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople. But he was more like uh, first among equals, so there were other bishops who weren't going to so to speak bow down to him and theological dispute was much more varied than in the East than in the west I'm sorry when you have somebody saying, "No no, 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 this is the way I see it," and somebody else says, "No no, no, this is the way I see it." somebody wins and somebody loses. Mm-hmm. so you had a, a number of Eastern Christian sects that each thought that their idea was correct and that the official church was not respecting it. So when Muhammad's people came through there, they had no particular loyalty to the man in Constantinople.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, so essentially, you had two prongs going around the Mediterranean. Right. You had the conquest. Uh, of what is now Turkey, mm-hmm. on up into Istanbul, mm-hmm. probably Constantinople, which became, um, when the Turks took it over, um, uh, Istanbul or Istanbul. Yes, you're going to change me.
1: No, no, I'm going to uh, footnote. Look, I was a professor for years. I can't resist footnotes. <laughs> First, Istanbul uh, is Greek. What it means is. in Stainpolis to the city. In the Middle Ages, Constantinople was so much more a city than any place else that you didn't have to say, I'm going to to, to the city.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Now, you've educated me.
1: And um, in fact, uh, the Turks sort of at first reverted to Constantinople. If you look at Turkish stamps, down through Ataturk's revolution in the early 20th century, they still defined it as Constantinople. I'll be darned. They didn't want to destroy it. They wanted to say, we are the rightful successors <coughs> to that.
0: We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we're going to talk about this conflict, the potential conflict, but also the, the mutual contributions between the two cultures. Uh, this is John Smutanka And with respect, and we're talking to Ron Grossman, a historical uh, columnist for the Chicago Tribune, his articles appear two to three times a month. This is—we uh, will be right back. We're now back on, with respect, with Ron Grossman, uh, a historian of fascinating depth. And we're talking about the period from the end of the Roman Empire in Rome, around 400, on up to uh, the, uh, the conquest by the Turks of Constantinople in 1453. But what effect does it have here in the United States today? And we've got it We've got it today. All right, Ron. I want to toss out with something Mm -hmm. to you. I was I studied um, Thomistic philosophy. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I had to learn it in Latin sometimes, which was an interesting proposition. However, one of the great Thomistic philosophers and theologians was Thomas Aquinas, Mm -hmm. who lived in the thirteenth century, and much of what they still call it today, Thomistic philosophy. And that is a great foundation for uh, the Roman Catholic uh, philosophical base. But in his writings, you see, when he quotes people as authorities, he will talk about not only Aristotle and Plato, but Avicenna, Avicenna and, and Averroes. Averroes. Right. And these were Arab philosophers. Who preserved, after the loss of great libraries in in Europe, mm-hmm. they preserved the works of Aristotle.
1: In, in mm-hmm. fact, uh, the, the generation mm-hmm. before him, their contribution was to go out and find those uh, Arabic translations and Arabic interpretations and bring them back and, and renew the study of it again. Incidentally, uh, I went to the University of Chicago uh, in the days of uh, Robert Maynard, Maynard and Hutchins. Hutchins. Yeah. And the ruling philosophy was Thomistic. Uh-huh. Somebody once said that uh, the University of Chicago teaches Thomistic philosophy to Jewish Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Um, uh, uh, the one thing, one interesting thing is that... Um, The hostilities and the borrowings were intertwined. For example, during the 12th century, beginning in 1096, Western knights went out to uh, the East to wrestle back the Holy Land from, as they would say, the infidels. Right. Once they got there, they found some interesting things like The food tastes really good. (laughs) That's right. Really good. Uh, The reason was that the spice routes had been cut off across the Mediterranean, but they still existed there. So they sent back with them, so to speak, a taste for better food. That's why when you go to Bologna, the bolognese sauce is wonderful. Mm -hmm. They also found that people there, especially if you were of noble rank, dressed these wonderful silks and things like this, they didn't want to be running around in shabby clothes anymore. That's where style comes from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they did it so successfully that the crusading orders were perpetually being denounced as they've gone native. They're no longer really Christian. Good point. But they softened, that softened the life of Western Europe palpably. Mm-hmm. palpably.
0: They're one of the great heroes of uh, Muslim um, military history and also political history is uh, a fellow who came from uh, not Arabia, but rather I think the Caucasus, if I'm not mistaken, um, Saladin.
1: Saladin, yes.
0: And he was the great warrior that got that mm-hmm. fought uh, the likes of uh, uh, Richard the Lionhearted mm-hmm. and the the French King mm-hmm. uh, in the in the one of the Crusades. And he was a person generally recognized today as um, sort of a, uh, a a bringer together of cultures and tolerant. Mm-hmm. He was pretty tolerant for the most part, uh, of uh, the Christian religion within uh, his domain that he had, uh, you know, fought for. But
1: that goes back to the foundation of the faith. Um, Islam began with the idea that you don't have, and conquered with the idea that you don't have to convert the people, nor do they have to convert. Their faith can remain as long as it recognizes a monotheistic
2: deity.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians, the religion of ancient Persia, were tolerated. The reason people converted is the the, uh, Islamic idea coupled that with the idea of there's two taxation systems, Mm -hmm. Muslims and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And everybody else pay a stiffer tax Hmm. So pretty soon everybody else said, you know, what they believe is not that much different from what I believe. I might as well become Mm -hmm. uh, a Muslim. For the Jews, it was the golden age of uh, Jewry in Europe up until the age of Napoleon. Uh, Jews could could have high positions in the Islamic Empire. Uh, Their religion was tolerated at a time where Burning of the Talmud was sort of like a Halloween ride up in the north.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, in, in uh, here's a here's a twist. In London, there is what is called the Temple, mm-hmm. and the Temple is um, has two of the four Inns of Court mm-hmm. where all barristers, trial lawyers in Britain, uh, have to belong. One is the Inner Temple, the other next is Middle Temple, and then there's Gray's Inn and Lincoln's Inn. Those four. You have to, if you want to be a barrister, you've got to be a member of one of those. The Temple was not a Jewish temple, mm-hmm. but rather it was the headquarters in the England. the order
1: of the Templars of
0: the of the Templars, yeah. who were the great knight, uh, holy warriors, mm-hmm. uh, devised, started, and in, in the Crusades. And became, for all kinds of historical reasons, um, both the largest strongest military force, but also the banking force. Right.
1: That's why they had temples, <laughs> is to get the money here, there, and everywhere. That's right. That was also their downfall when the king of France picked it, peeked in one day and said, hey, I like that. Yeah. And grabbed it.
0: Yeah, grabbed it and, and murdered a whole bunch right. of people.
1: Yeah, coming back to the idea of tolerance and uh, multinationalism law, at, uh, uh, in the city of Jerusalem it is the Church of the Holy sepulture. And um, each part of it, physical part, belongs to a different Christian group. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox is the Orthodox. The this is the that, the this and the that. Da, 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 da. And there's a little courtyard between two wings. Uh, and as I recall, it was the Egyptian church and the Coptic church kept saying, no, that's part of mine.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: part of mine. And they were fighting. So one day, the uh, this would have been, uh, I would guess, in the, like, the 14th, 15th century or something like that. One day, the, uh, uh, the representative of the Turkish sultan came, and he said, I'm not getting woken up in the middle of the night anymore. He took his cane, and he drew a line in it. And he said, you guys on that side, you stay on that side. At least to the last time I was there, each denomination sends out an aged monk once a day to sit in a broken chair on that line, sila, and stare at each other, make a move. And to this day, since the uh, since everybody else doesn't represent anybody else, the keys to the church are held by a Muslim. I'll be darned that they're held by a Muslim that that's a very big office.
0: well, we could go on in talking about the history from the Crusades on through um, in that period of time about uh, fights between the uh, uh, the Christians in Europe and the Muslims in uh, Arabia and North Africa, um, which which went on and I mean there were serious fights the, uh, the uh, Turks or the uh, uh, Muslims uh, conquered uh, most of Spain and then they were driven out and uh in 1470 uh, or something like that.
1: Yeah, about the same year that uh, uh Columbus set sail.
0: Yes. Yeah. And um, and then on the other side, the um, Muslims came in coming from the north, uh, probably from the south, uh through us Istanbul, Constantinople. Um, they were stopped finally at the battle of uh, Vienna.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh saved by, I will tell you, a Pole, yes. General uh King John Sobieski. Right. But at any rate, I want <clears> to. <throat> I hope that in our discussion <clears throat> that we have had the ability to wake people up to this wide range of the life of the people in Europe and, and, and Africa, North Africa, and, 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 and Arabia that has affected our world today. You bet. We have the conflict between the religions. Mm-hmm. We have the conflict between... Um, Different philosophical ways of looking at things. We have economic problems. We have uh, how the Middle East was created, the various countries created by the British and the French. And that's all affecting us today.
1: You know where Jordan comes from? We said earlier that, the, just before World War II, the British and French split up the whole thing. Right. After the war was over, they had the British had promised too many sheiks from Arabia. And so one guy started off going for Damascus, which had been promised to the French. Right. And they ran in to tell Winston Churchill about that. He was at the hotel, in uh, uh, the great hotel in Jerusalem. And he said, that's no problem. Bring me a map. And they brought him a map, and he threw lines on it. Look at it now. Jordan has the straightest borders in the country.
2: <laughs> and said,
1: tell him to stay there. That's his kingdom. And they said, well, what will we call it? And they said, tell him it's called Transjordan. It's the other side of Jordan. The
0: Jordan River. River. All right. Ron, this yeah. has been a load of fun. I enjoyed talking to you, and I hope, our, as I say, our listeners get a, an appreciation of the depth, the interest, the life, and the importance of the period from 450 until today. You bet. The name of our program is With Respect. We are on every Wednesday and Thursday, pardon me, on every Sunday and Thursday. And remember our mantra, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.